Club to listen to part two of a panel discussion recorded on May 8th about what sort of Peterborough might be envisioned after the pandemic. Now, we've all read those predictions that this pandemic could come back at us in waves. Uh, and I know we've read predictions that this could last. I've certainly seen predictions this could last up to two years. Uh, everyone, even Bay Street venture capitalists, is suddenly sounding like a socialist. Everyone's turning up to the government for support and leadership, but the cupboards are quickly uh, being emptied. How? So I guess what I'm wondering is how should our governments at all levels respond to these challenges, given the new the new diminished realities in well global finance, equity markets, etc. We're missing the economist on the line. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Do you have something to say about the economy there? Uh, well, I think one thing that I've just been thinking about in this, but it has more to do with the with the labor relations that I, I was talking about earlier is, you know, we are seeing from our federal government, particularly in terms of the supports that it's putting in place for students, money being allocated to students to undertake specific jobs or to support the pandemic recovery response. And so I think that that's something, you know, kind of speaking to what you were mentioning earlier too, Cheryl, is how are we going to fund the work that needs to get done? And, you know, the federal government is in a unique position to be able to, you know, take on more of those debts and do more of those stimulus or impetus. So I I see, I see we have some framework for that happening right now with the students. And, you know, I can expect if this is going to continue that that might be something that we need to expand and build on. Okay, yes, we are missing an economist. I invited Terry Guile to join us, but he couldn't make it. All this, of course, gets very, is rendered in very sharp focus once we start talking about local business and uh, cupboards being emptied and what government can do and the limits to what government can do. In a very broad, general way, wondering if this one of the new things that, that we should be looking at now is the powers of the municipality. And, oh, yeah. Uh, should, should the municipalities get together and have a real hard sit down with the province and say, um, what is this thing about us being your creatures? <laughs> That's the language of use. Municipalities are creatures of the province, and uh, we're we're pretty. We know we've got a pretty long history behind us, and uh, um, if we're going to focus on the local as key in our economic recovery, uh, what more powers do we need? And and uh, one of the subsets of that is in food security. How do the municipalities, like city, big bigger cities, work more closely with their surrounding farming hinterlands that feed them? And what new what new things do we need to do on this? It's just kind of a, a thing that's growing in my mind. So our economic development group is county and city PKED, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, what what kind of rural economic development can we newly envision that will tighten the food supply chain between county and city. And that's a really big topic. There was a food and farming summit held on that, and some good thinking came out of it. The proceedings of that are spent somewhere, I hope, on perhaps on sustainable Peterborough sites. Mm-hmm. And, 
And the, the other thing is to hold conversation in, in ways that we've been practicing, you know, reimagine Peterborough, participatory budgeting, but have them really focus the, the economy. The economy didn't cause the coronavirus, but it's sure it's having its biggest impact there. And our economic recovery is going to be limping for a really long time. And how do we recognize that deficits at a federal level aren't a bad thing? Everybody gets their knickers in a twist over, you know, the, the huge ballooning deficits. But there's very interesting stuff and stuff I just looked at as late as today about historical look at when governments run deficits, the private sector does really well. And, and without what's happening at our federal level, people would be not only dying of, of COVID, but dying of starvation and despair and mental illness and all sorts of things. So we have to take a hard look at the role of deficit spending. Yes, suddenly socialism is no longer a dirty word. Not just socialism, but, you know, the the, uh, the old school of thought pre-71 or 73, whenever we went off the gold standard, our economy really changed. The basis of it really changed. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. our thinking and our knowledge of that has not caught up. And so small, I'll just use the word for short form, small C conservatives still think that it's a terrible thing to run a deficit. But if if, as we're doing, borrowing from ourselves to the Bank of Canada, that's just digits. We can continue to do this. As long as we balance the economy, we don't have to balance the books all the time. And that economic balance, I think, is what we're trying to achieve at this time. Cheryl, you know, you you remind me of a conversation I had uh, with my mother before she passed away 10 years ago. I I was born during World War II, so I have no memory of the Depression. But I said, what were those years like? And she she described how tough it was. And then she said this something that really stayed with me. She said, no one had work. Everyone was scrimping by. Times were very tough. Then the war came. And suddenly, everyone had money. And it just made me ponder, how does that happen? I'm, I'm recalling a, an expression that the economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of the environment. And, um, and, and I think it's, it's true in that are we focused so much on the economy or are we focused on that larger container of our society, including the natural world? And I also think that what we're seeing, as you identified earlier, is some of the gaps, some of the vulnerabilities in our, whether it's our economic systems, our supply chains, and reliance on transportation over such great distances, but also the cracks in our social systems. And so, in some ways, we now have to incur some of the financial debts in order to address our, our social deficits and ecological deficits. And so when we talk about balancing the economy, as as Cheryl was a moment ago, I think we also have to look at how we bring a sustainability lens, um, a resilience lens to our future and the balancing of some of these different elements, because I think they have been out of whack. And, you know, when I look at social service programs or economic development supports, I think we see a fair number of resources going in those directions, but very few into the environmental. So there are some reshuffling of priorities and reexaminations of our institutions and the way that we do full cost accounting to understand this more fully. And we can reduce our costs as well as increase our spending. I'm thinking about what steps 
we might be taking to backstop our local and regional economies? And I guess to get to survival level, uh, what about our local food supply? Right now, we can still buy green veggies and citrus fruit all winter at our supermarkets. But what would we do if the supply stopped? Well, don't get me started on food, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> oh, go ahead. <laughs> well, I, I was thinking about this and, and, and personally. I, I've always uh, wanted to support our local farmers through buying at farmers markets. And then there's the argument about, well, it's more expensive and people in lower income cannot purchase at farmers market. Uh, but when you have an income that allows you to do that, it's, a, it's, it's like a, a priority choice. It's a, it's a values choice. It's a moral position to say, I will buy from my local farmers. Rather than taking advantage of the, for instance, the flash food app at the local superstore, whereby I can get a huge box produce, including oranges and avocados and and everything for $5 because it's shelf dated, you know, past prime. So I experimented with doing that. And I haven't eaten an orange for years because I eat seasonally and locally. And it was a treat to have orange. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I kept thinking, I got all of that for $5. I would have spent a lot more than that at my farmer's market. But I thought, no, I have to invest in my farmers because they are going to be my future food supply. And I don't get any interest on that except to know that maybe I will have food. It might not be oranges, but I will eat. Yes. I think uh, so the, I'm glad that we got to the um, food because it's definitely something that I've been thinking about as well. You know, I'm glad that the, you know, the farmers markets are still running and uh, one of them is set up to run in a couple of weeks time. I do think that shopping locally is definitely something that we're going to hear a lot more about. Um, but Cheryl brings up a good point in terms of affordability. How do we ensure or how can we work to make shopping local a little bit more accessible to people uh, who are on lower incomes? Uh, I don't have an answer, but (laughs) certainly would would be happy to hear an answer. I do think, you know, I did hear about one store, and I forget what they're called, unfortunately, uh, but they're sort of like a local food wholesale uh, where they source a lot of their food stuff from local farmers and put it together in bulk, which makes it a little bit more affordable. So I think ideas like that might be good ways to move forward. I think that's uh, really interesting, Kemi, and I would just add to that, in addition to, you know, the affordability of local produce, I mean, we, we bring up the, the term low income, and, you know, part of that conversation is also about raising incomes for people, like raising the floor income support for those who are in our community who are living, you know, on on incomes that we have now determined through, you know, the federal supports that are coming through are actually below what people need to live off of, right? Yeah. So that's also part of part of that conversation too. For sure. I think uh the conversation around you know basic income, living wage, I think more people will be on board for that. Uh, especially, you know, <laughs> After receiving CERB and, you know, recognizing uh, the importance of having sort of like a social safety net. And if going back to food a little bit as well, I do think that it's, it's highlighted the importance of people knowing how to grow their own food. Uh, one of the things uh, that we saw, you know, there was a huge sort of push to, for the province to allow uh, community gardens to be, to be open. And I, I'm really glad to hear that the province uh, did agree on that because I think 
Um, if we're talking about lower income people or not just lower income, but anyone really should be able to grow some sort of food because you're right. We may come to a point where we were not able to get the typical foods that we get in the, in the grocery store. So how do we source that? Uh, if you're lucky and you've got a backyard, you could do it there, a community garden or some sort of raised plot. Uh, but I do think, um, you know, I, I see on social media people who are like, well, I've never grown anything before, but I'm going to learn how to do that now because they're realizing the importance Things like nourish locally are a, a terrific example of what can can um, scale up. I guess it, it helps people learn how to plant their food. There are nourish dollars to help people afford to uh, shop at farmers markets in dignity and uh, um, cooking, helping people learn to cook. If you don't have help and you've never done it, it's too it, you give up too easily because it is really hard to learn to garden and it's hard to garden. Yes. Um, and you know, and people don't have land. It's it's it, it, we're in complexity here, aren't we? Everything's connected. Oh, very much so. And if we if we start pulling on one string, we unravel a whole lot of others that have to kind of bring into the into the ball of string to make some sense out of it. And I think that kind of complexity thinking uh, needs to be better understood, I guess. A friend of mine works in long-term care, and this friend tells the story of one of her residents And apparently this resident has a very blasé attitude towards the pandemic. Now, this uh, this person, of course, is on in years, well into her 90s, but this woman survived the Blitz in London as a teenager. She remembers the nightly bombing, the fear of invasion, and all the hardships. Now, compared to World War II, uh, this pandemic to her is sort of just a minor inconvenience. So I... I'm wondering, how can we share a sense of perspective and hope in the face of a constant onslaught of bleak pandemic coverage? I mean, how can we transcend the politicization of every government announcement? Social media is suddenly bursting with thousands of instant epidemiologists and public health experts. I mean, who knew? I guess it comes down to how can we give our better angels a stronger voice? I'm not sure if this answers your question directly, Bill, but one thing that I have uh, been thinking about a lot in all of this, uh, both for myself and individually and, and, you know, for us as a community and maybe collectively at a social level, is that we're in at a point where we are going to have to become much more comfortable with living with uncertainty and have much more kind of attunement to risk awareness sort of thinking and precautionary sort of thinking. So those are things that, you know, you can get really caught up in trying to look into the crystal ball and know what's coming. But the the reality is that we don't know. Uh, We're making best guesses. But there are principles and practices that we can use to help navigate uncertainty. And as Cheryl was pointing out, complexity. So really, you know, sitting with those and, and building on those moving forward, as opposed to trying to get too into the weeds of predictive thinking. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I've spent a considerable time in long-term care homes, and um, it, it, I think the the mortality rate that we keep hearing in those places 
think we're we're in a, a process of denying death, but but it's being shoved in our face by the crisis in the home. And we, I think we have to face that. We have to face mortality, and we have to face the end of of the ways that, that used to be. And that's a, a kind of death. We we have to say goodbye to maybe some of the affluence and the ease. Or we have to let go of destructive ways of thinking that we never thought were destructive. We thought they were really good and they created things better. I'm sure as that acquaintance of yours sat in the underground in London with the bombs falling, they, they all had death facing them every second. Uh, and, and it wasn't the same as it is now. We can keep it at a distance with isolation in our homes. Frontline workers, though, are facing it every day. There's even on an online thing called the Death Cafe, where people discuss very calmly um, it, it facing our own mortality. And it's not just our physical mortality, it's the death of ways of living and expectations and comfort and affluence. Yeah, as you say, complexity. <laughs> We've been a, a very death-denying culture, even though we... we we spread death all over the place with tar sands, tailing cons, and uh, polluted air, which re- re- shortens our lifespans and with people's health and all of that. We-, we can't live forever. And once we get a perspective like that, maybe it will help us in our rethinking of things, in entertaining new ways of doing things. One of the things, Bill, I'm noticing is that people are, by being, well, staying at home most of the time, is that people are noticing their neighborhood and the details of their own place a little more. And I think of gardening that we were talking about a few moments ago, about how that connects people to place and to each other and to the rhythms of, of uh, the seasons and to the, uh, the different kinds of soils and places. And with the technology that we have, we may see less commuting. We may find ways to restructure our supply chains, I was surprised to hear Premier Doug Ford talk about being critical of, of some of the distance that some of the products come and that we can produce things in Ontario and here in the Corthas, of course. So that connection to place is something that I think people are finding ways to recognize that. And that is a, um, and a teaching and experience of Indigenous peoples, I, I believe, in that We cannot always be mobile and looking over the fence and um, staying disconnected from our relationship to place and our responsibilities to place in each other. And I think this this pandemic is bringing some of these insights more to the fore for those of us who are not Indigenous, but finding it, finding our ways to some of those insights in our own uh, in our own pathways. Yes. I to agree more. Yes. So, Cheryl, you mentioned predicting and and getting out of that mindset and embracing, not only embracing complexity and nuance, but embracing uncertainty. So how far into the future dare we gaze? I mean, what might happen this summer? What about the fall when the cold weather comes back and the traditional, what we used to call the flu season? I'll I'll defer to Sarah on this because I think it was she who brought that up. <laughs> the hot potatoes are being passed around virtually. <laughs> well, I didn't want to usurp her. You said Cheryl, and I think you said Sarah. Who said it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, thank you, Cheryl. Um, I think the one thing that I might add 
to that is just a bit of a of a nuance and uh, differentiation between trying to get too into the weeds of predicting what's going to happen uh, versus visioning or imagining what is possible. And, and I think, you know, we can look into the future in a visioning way through conversations like this. And as Ian pointed out, you know, artists, and there are lots of good creative practices that can help with that as well. For me right now, I think that that's a more uh, constructive uh, and productive process to engage in rather than, you know, looking into the future and trying to get right with guesses about what might happen. You know, when I, I get, I'm coming back to Indigenous teachings as well, thinking in terms of seven generations, that we need to be thinking longer term and on that, that concept of sustainability and resilience because we've seen the declines, we've seen some of the impacts of short-term thinking where we think this, this new project or this new product is, is going to really help us out, but without really looking at the fuller details or everyone who might be affected. And so that longer-term thinking that is thinking within the, the boundaries and the, the rhythms of the environment we live within is going to be important rather than some of the shorter-term thinking that we've seen in the past. Absolutely. And- I might just jump on to that, Ian, in terms of talking about Indigenous teachings and knowledge and just wanting to be really clear that those can't be divorced from Indigenous peoples themselves. So if we're talking about learning from Indigenous teachings and practices, we also need to be talking about Indigenous peoples and their leadership through this as well and what that looks like. Absolutely. Yes. yes. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, th- I, th- I think that is a, a really, really good instance of the kind of community conversations we have to have starting now and post-isolation that open up new windows beyond, there's something called the Overton window. It's a fancy name. You can Wikipedia it. But it means that if you just look to government solutions, governments operate within the Overton window. It means their uh, restrictions. We can only do this because, as I was talking about before, the province doesn't allow us to do that or our tax base is too small. So their solutions are limited to what they are allowed to do. But they have to be, the municipal government has to be brought into these more visionary conversations where maybe their window can be widened if we imagine it enough, if we push it enough, if we have some really good ideas to bring forward and good arguments behind them for changing that window, plus widening the window of what communities can do. Uh, What about neighborhood associations? What about the power of neighborhood organizing and that kind of thing? These are things that used to happen, and we have to envision them again. Well, we're winding down here, so give everyone a chance to have some last words, parting thoughts as we wrap up. What has come up for you uh, as we've been talking about these topics? For me, uh, Bill, I think it's the liberation of resources. I think of the incredible resources that are being marshaled now at the federal and provincial levels and ultimately at, at the local level. And that is not just financial resources, it's certainly that's prominent, but are the resources of our spirit, of our communities, of our ideas, of 
the synergies that we get from connecting with each other and with the earth. And I think there's many lessons and it'll take us a long time to learn them all, but that liberation of resources and creativity that gives me hope as we're looking at resurgence, as the visioning that Sarah was talking about, that that provides hope and possibility for our community. And I think we're, we're very rich and wealthy in, in terms of these kind of skills and talents in our community to take us forward. Great. Anyone else? Well, I'll just use an aphorism that kind of meant something to me at times. Um, when I change my level of awareness, begin to attract a different reality. Last words, any last ideas, last thoughts? I'm, uh, I find myself, I, I'm thinking on what Sarah said about rather than, you know, trying to predict, was it, did you say visioning? Uh, and I really mm-hmm. like that uh, because if you visualize what it is that you want to work towards and it's a lot easier to get there than sort of trying to, to stumble through it. I think the the tricky part will be that we all get to the same collective vision, um, <laughs> which is something we've been, you know, we've all been trying to do for for a number uh, of years. But that's where those conversations are so key, right? Having those those conversations and those connections with people so that we're not just silos. But yeah, definitely visioning where where would we like to to be and then then develop a plan of how to get. Well. Thank you so much, Cheryl, Ian, Kemi, and Sarah, for doing this. Any feedback, send me a note, bill.templeman, M-A-N, at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Until Thursday, May 21st, when our panel returns to look at pandemic politics. This is Bill Templeman. 